recording. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Pulp, the podcast based on a true story. I'm your host, Johnny Flores. And I'm Ashley Brandt, and this week we're going to be talking about the Lifetime movie Who Killed Jean Benet, which was released uh, kind of in anticipation of the 20th anniversary of the death of Jean Benet Ramsey. That anniversary being today, December 26th, 2016. And gearing up for this anniversary, there has been a slew of new reimagined media coverage, starting with the A&E doc, um, The Killing of JonBenet Ramsey, The Truth Uncovered, uh, which premiered in, I believe, like August or September, uh, followed by the much-hyped CBS reinvestigation that premiered in October. I'm sure there will be more coverage between when we're recording this and when we will be publishing this episode because this is one of the most infamous crimes in you know recent memory Jean Benet's continued to be on tabloids at newsstands long after her death I remember like seeing being so familiar with like her image without knowing anything about this crime for so much of my young life yeah, I watched this Lifetime movie as my introduction to the case. Oh my god. Like, we have... I mean, obviously, I have been aware of John Benet Ramsey for a while, but I didn't know any of the specifics. Uh, I've picked up a couple from you, like, just as we've recorded the podcast. But I wanted to go into this movie without having done a lot of research just at this point knowing like I am part of the audience of this movie and like I think that this is fair and then I watched the movie again after doing a lot of research and it definitely changed my perspective on the film (laughs) so walk me through your first viewing I know when you were watching it, you immediately texted me about the voiceover, which I think everyone who's covered this movie has commented on. It's one of the creepiest choices, but I think it really clumsily sets up this movie to be like, look, we're on the victim side when maybe that's not exactly the case. Yeah. Like, my experience of watching the movie was like, one why is this narrated like this? This is really weird. Two, just knowing, like, there's no way that the case has gotten this big if it's so clear-cut. Or, like, Mm -hmm. I just had some troubles figuring out what was going on exactly. But, yeah, for the most part, I was not impressed with the film either time that I watched it. Yeah, it's not one of Lifetime's better efforts. It's not even entertaining, I think, because the creepy narrative becomes so intrusive, I think. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just Jean Benet alternately, you know, a young voice actress doing, you know, these lines that are attributed to Jean Benet being like, I don't remember who killed me. Can you help me figure it out? Which is creepy. Um, I don't, it's just, it's so 
it's this really one-dimensional like uh she refers to herself as a princess and then kind of as i think you become more cognizant of the bias you realize that um you know she the sympathies of the narrator are given to the boulder police department and not you know jean benet's own parents there's no real i think dramatic weight to the narrative and it's ultimately i think kind of sensationalist and unnecessary yeah this is supposedly john benet looking on from some alternate plane who has nothing to say for much of the film except like once upon a time there was a girl named john benet who looked like a princess but wasn't and then basically just being like oh these people are from the city they help I wish they could help me remember what happened. Like, that's fucking convenient. Yeah. Ghost of Jean Benet that doesn't know how you died? All right, cool. Yeah, the entire purpose of that narrative is to cheer on the Boulder Police Department and remain completely silent when there is any scene just involving the Ramsey family. Yeah. John Bonet has just been like, I'm dead. Don't care about these people anymore. <laughs> I hope this detective figures out who did it. Oh no, he's quitting because he suspects my parents. He's not supposed to quit. He's the hero of the story. Like, <laughs> who will rescue the princess? It is, it's the. It's the Jean Benet that we've seen on tabloid photos because what I think has been so fascinating about her case and what's kind of carried it through the media is not only like missing white woman syndrome, obviously, but the fact that she was this young six-year-old child who was involved in beauty pageants and was made to look much, much older. Yes. And those are the photos that you see on tabloids and you see, like, representing this story are these photos of her in pageants, not her living her normal life, you know, outside of this kind of limited arena. Yeah. I think now would be a good time to kind of jump into just a basic overview of the case. Mm -hmm. Obviously, we're going to get more into it when we discuss the differences between the film and reality, but... For listeners who, like me, are not intimately familiar with the case, December 26th, 1996, 5.52 a.m. in Boulder, Colorado, Patsy Ramsey calls the police to say that her daughter has gone missing. They have a ransom note. Police arrive. They're handling the entire thing as a kidnapping The majority of the police leave, at which point there's one officer left with the family who has had, like, a lot of people come over to help them. John Bonet's father, John, finds her body in the basement, picks it up, carries it upstairs, um, and then... From there, it kind of goes into, like, was it the parents? Was it any of these other people? There's an investigation. Ultimately, nobody's ever convicted. Mm-hmm. Is that the... Yeah, that's really it. The speculation surrounding the case really kind of surrounds those 
you know, eight hours where the Boulder PD is in the house and the body has not yet been found. Because so much of the, you know, forensic evidence was destroyed because the crime scene was not contained. And the film, the Lifetime movie, kind of tries to seemingly put blame on the family and their friends and they just sort of follow Linda Arndt around or, you know, the actress playing Linda Arndt being like, oh, get out of there, blah, blah, blah. And it's supposed to, I think, show that, like, she's doing, you know, trying her best and no one's listening to her. But I would argue that as a police officer, she would have had the authority to ask all of these people to leave what is a crime scene. The scene of a kidnapping they thought at the time but a crime scene yeah. nonetheless so the ramseys are very rich john ramsey owns a software company or something yeah Some this was computer like computer imaging yeah this was like dot-com boomy time so like they had a private plane they had this mansion yeah. labyrinth of a house in boulder so Right. Police are treating the entire situation with kid gloves, which is ultimately what they blame on, like, or what they attribute the freedom given to the Ramses during this time is. Everything the Ramses are doing, if you want to suspect them, I guess it makes sense. But it also, like, Everything they do also kind of just seems like a normal reaction. Or not necessarily a normal reaction, but like an understandable, reasonable reaction Mm -hmm. to grief. And we should mention that for years and years, this story was sold as like, well, everyone knows the parents did it. The parents obviously did it. And I think so many people coming into this case are just under the assumption that it's basically solved at this point. Oh, wow. As somebody just jumping in, that was not my understanding. Yeah. If you've looked at um, reddit.com slash Bonnet or whatever, it is all about the Ramsey theory. And I think people are really um, attracted to that idea, again, I think because of the pageants and because there's this narrative that people create around specifically Patsy Ramsey, which we'll definitely get more into as we talk about kind of what leads people down this path but before i got really into the case i was very much under the assumption oh well like we all know the parents did it and it wasn't until i watched the a and e doc earlier this year that i kind of started to see well to break down the speculation that kind of builds up the the family theory is really what it comes down to and that's what so much of this movie is about because it doesn't give a lot of attention to the DNA evidence that eventually exonerates the Ramses in 2008, which is completely glossed over in the Lifetime movie. And instead, the movie focuses so much on painting a sympathetic picture of Linda Arndt, uh, Stephen Thomas, I think is the name of the other detective, and then focusing on these kind of odd behaviors of the Ramses and really focusing on framing those behaviors as odd. Yeah, the movie ends with the, like, oh, by the way, it turns out that, like, the grand jury did have an indictment for the Ramses, not bringing up that, like, the district attorney of Boulder came out and was like, hi, guys, the Ramses are innocent, please. 
Move on. <laughs> right, and we should mention that the grand indictment that they're talking or the the indictment that they're talking about from the grand jury occurred in like ninety seven, and the DNA exoneration right. happened in two thousand eight. But four pages of an eighteen page grand jury statement were leaked in two thousand thirteen, and we've never seen the other fourteen pages. That's correct, and the charge was it was two charges. It was. They were both charged as accessories. Yeah, they were charged as accessories, but the other one was just like child abuse. Yeah, it was like negligent. By negligence yeah, child or abuse. something. But neither one of them was an indictment for murder, mm-hmm. which the movie does not mention. And then the movie ends with the like, here's what Steve's been up to. Mm-hmm. But they always save the best little tidbit for last. Mm-hmm. The like, obviously, this is based on a true story. More events happened. They end with it just being like, yeah, he quit the police department because that's how much he cared about catching the guilty party. And like, he's just a really good family man now. He's the only person who cares about Jean Bonnet. This motherfucker. Is the anti Marsha Clark. Which I'm realizing I want to unpack that, but we are getting way ahead we of ourselves. We really are. And it's so hard because I, I feel like the further I get into this case, the less I want to talk about kind of those eight hours that people focus on so much because they're so inconclusive when we start to talk about the behavioral analysis of the Ramses. But again, that's really the bulk of this movie and the bulk of the CBS documentary that everyone fucking loves. Yeah. So let's power through it. Let's go. This movie called Who Killed John Bonet was half of four hours of special Jean Bonnet programming that Lifetime Yes, did you watched for... the rest of it. I did. The documentary was called... John Bonet's mother. Patsy does not have a name. <laughs> there is going to be a Patsy documentary, though. It's okay. not. Well, this was not a, out yet. A quote unquote Patsy doc. Victim or murderer. <laughs> and the documentary is. Which I assume aired directly after the movie. But the documentary is basically just like. Oh, yeah, Patsy's innocent, by the way. <laughs> like, here's a bunch of intruders that it might have been, maybe, but DNA is, like, inconclusive on that. But it definitely wasn't Patsy. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's like, Lifetime, what are you doing? Do you want to have your cake and eat it too, Lifetime? Is that what's going on? Oh, they definitely do. I think we should talk at the end of this about what this movie would look like if it just covered the hard evidence if it didn't fuck around with any of this like look how weird the ramses are nonsense like what would that movie look like mm-hmm. it'd be a fucking better movie i'll tell it you it would that. probably be like 20 minutes long because <laughs> we know so little that's true besides just linda aren't being like john ramsey was nice to me and i thought that was suspicious <laughs> <laughs> wait we're doing I know, it again. i know this movie okay this movie 
who killed John mm-hmm. Bonet, accompanied by John Bonet's mother, victim or murderer. It's directed by Jason Lapierre, written by Brian L. Ross. John Ramsey is played by Michelle Gill. Michael, Michael Gill. It's definitely. I think that's okay. That's the correct spelling that I have on here. I think it's Michael. With just the E. Maybe it is Michelle. I don't know. Michelle? I don't know. AKA, though. But. Gideon from Mr. Robot. And the president that precedes Frank from House of Cards. Right. And then there's a bunch of other people in this movie, none of whom really matter. Julia Campbell plays Patsy. Kiefer O'Reilly plays Burke. Uh, Fleet White is played by a man named David Keeley. Kendall Cross plays Patricia White. Uh, oh, man, I never know how to pronounce this name. It's... Uh, Ooh. I want to say Gaelic. Ian Bailey? Ian sounds right. It's three vowels in a row, though. So He's played by Steve... Er, he plays Steve Thomas. Camille Sullivan plays Linda Arndt. And then John Bonet herself is played by Peyton Lipinski, who, during filming, was never called John Bonet. Uh, didn't even really know that her character is murdered. So that's this movie. The movie, yeah, opens with footage of John Bonet performing. Although, no, it's no, 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 because I noticed that the movie did this, which was really strange. All of the like footage of John Bonet is Peyton Lipinski. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and for a lot of it, they have her just like in this pair of overalls where in a way I think they were trying to get away from the like beauty queen aspect, mm-hmm. which is something we can talk about. But then when the Ramses go on CNN, that's the actual... The actual Ramses. The actual Ramses on CNN. And you're like, those are not the actors <laughs> that they like... What? <laughs> If you can't recreate this iconic interview, (laughs) Julia Campbell, maybe you shouldn't be playing Patsy. Did you ever think of that? That's real. (laughs) Yeah, you do a real good weeping through your fingers. But but can you... But again, this case has always been about blending facts, like the Ramsey's interview, with heavily dramatized speculation. A.K. the rest of this movie. But it does that weird time jump at the beginning, too. Right. So we get the... The 911 call. And then it goes 30 hours later. And that's when we meet Steve Thomas, who is, like, all-American good cop. He's so frustrated because that damn ADA won't prosecute his uh, the crackhead that he, like, arrested. There's this whole thing they have where he's like, oh, are you going to give him 
a dental plan and the DA is like, maybe I heard it's really bad for your teeth. Oh, it's meth. Anyway, immediately just like, look, Steve Thomas, all-American cop with a great jaw and that pesky ADA. He then is talking to Linda Arndt, who he's, she's like, oh, by the way, the crime scene wasn't uh, preserved. And then he's like, what went on in there? And then it's like, boom, 29 hours earlier. And so there's this weird, like, jumping back and forth. But that framing, again, just so clearly puts the Boulder PD in this position where it looks like they're trying to do the right thing. They have all of these forces working against them. They're the underdogs. And I think had it opened with 911 call, the PD shows up and completely fucks up preserving the crime scene, this would be a slightly different movie. It would have a different tone to it, I think. Oh, for sure. Because, again, like, the Ramses don't they don't know that they need to preserve the scene. They're not police detectives. Yeah, I don't know how the police could, like, because even for a fucking kidnapping, their whole thing is like, oh, we thought it was a kidnapping. That's why we weren't, like, keeping them secured in one room, or, like, that's why we didn't clear the crime scene first. And it's like, even if it's a kidnapping, you still need to get everybody out of that fucking house. Like, you don't know where this potential kidnapper, like, not a fucking excuse. We thought it was a kidnapping. We didn't know. (laughs) And they, and, you know, they don't even search the house, which is proven when they find her body eight hours later. Apparently they did search the house. They just didn't open the door to the quote unquote wine cellar, which is like, again, yeah yeah. backing backing back up though (laughs) it's so hard to like dwell on this though but what what people point to and what this movie really does cover these are all of these little like quips that linda arndt and steve thomas and other members of the boulder pd have brought up in interviews over and over again as their evidence linda arndt comes to the door and john ramsey is cordial to her And that's kind of seen as being socially inappropriate, uh, kind of off tone. She doesn't like that. And then the, you know, time period stated for the ransom note. The the ransom note says, I'm going to call you between 8 a.m. and 10 a.m. That time window passes and the Ramseys don't comment on it. And that's seen as being them being unconcerned in some way. John Ramsey goes through the mail. That's seen as being callous. John Ramsey goes into his study. That scene is suspicious. Patsy's crying, and then while her hands are kind of over her face, she makes eye contact with Linda Arndt through her fingers. That's heavily emphasized as, like, look, Patsy wanted to make sure that people were seeing her. She was performing. She was being hysterical. The family already had plans to fly out to Michigan that day. John Ramsey changed that later to Atlanta, which is where they were from originally. Their desire to leave Colorado was seen as suspicious. Uh, Immediately after calling the police, Patsy called, like, friends and family to come over and be there for emotional support. And that was seen as, like, I was watching 
one of the documentaries that I watched where some police investigator was like, why would you not stay on the phone with the dispatcher? Like, that's really weird. And also inviting all of these people over is like, why are you trying to distance yourself from police? Which I think what this all really comes down to is like, police just don't fucking understand the way that people are supposed to interact with Mm -hmm. them because police are really weird and entitled to like way more or like feel entitled to way more respect than anybody is like yeah this whole like you called your pastor is specifically as a human shield is like just such a weird thing for a police officer to think in my mind yeah no it it totally is like yeah i can really see how you would make that call at least to just talk about it with someone maybe it was a little inappropriate for people to offer to rush over right away but at that point like what are you gonna say no don't support me in this time of extreme need i mean i think time and time again we see that patsy maybe isn't thinking rationally which is understandable and you can't you know penalize people for not grieving in a certain way or not behaving in a certain way in a time of crisis because shock affects people differently and then by that same token John Ramsey is seen as suspicious for being kind of too normal or just going about some of his normal day-to-day business while they're waiting for this news. So there's really no way for either of them to win. I think anything they would have done, you know, in the presence of Linda Arndt, who drives so much of this because she's the only one at the house after the time period for the ransom call ends she's the only one left there and so she has driven so much of the narrative of what the ramses were doing in this interim that it's really hard to objectively look at this because she gives interviews where she will say oh yeah john ramsey going through the mail was so suspicious suspicious to me that you know i counted the bullets in my gun because i thought i was gonna have to use them do you remember that it's in a dock it might not be when they're going when he goes through the mail but there was something else he did way before she was like oh go look in your basement where she said that his kind of normalcy tipped her off to the point where she and she says this in an interview counted her bullets because she thought she might have to use them she's still giving interviews like this 20 years later and you can see because the interviewer will be like well like do you think patsy did it and then (laughs) linda will like give her this really intense stare and be like you know i can't talk about that but you know what i think (laughs) (laughs) like not blink (laughs) honestly like she's unsettling i thought that the lifetime movie did a very good job of making her seem relatable in a way that she like actually is not yeah if you've never seen an interview with her i highly recommend just looking up a few of them because the way that they present her in the film is so different from the way the real Linda Arndt presents in real life talking about this case. Yeah. The first time I watched the movie, I was like, okay, I, like, legitimately feel bad for Linda, who, like, okay, this is gonna get into a whole, like, I don't even remember how much we talked about this during the last time we talked about a Lifetime movie, but Linda's arc... I feel like I need to just talk about this for a minute. Go for it. Okay. So, fucking Lifetime Television for Women. 
I know that this isn't a hot take, but they're like actually misogynistic AF. Right? Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. Their presentation of Linda aren't in this movie is the perfect example of why. One. You're like, okay, cool. I get it. Like, tough situation to be in. It's lifetime. All of the men are leaving. Is she getting left behind because, like, she's the only woman? And then, of course, she's going to get blamed. Like, all of this, like, I'm team Linda. First time I'm watching the movie. Mm -hmm. When she gets, like, kicked off the case, I'm still here for Linda. I'm like, fucking men, right? (laughs) This guy Steve gets to stay on the case, but Linda gets kicked off, and her entire arc is then being like, like the ghost of John Bonet, go get him, partner. (laughs) I had more of a rant, but I didn't feel like you know what it's okay because i have to issue a retraction uh linda arndt made that comment about counting the bullets in her gun after john ramsey brought up jean benet's body from the basement but we can talk about that more okay that actually vaguely makes sense because she's like oh i'm outnumbered in this house yeah it with the murderers the that 20 years later she's giving this absurd interview and i i have the text here which i would love to read to you oh okay. please do so um this is an interview that she gave on good morning america this is in 1999 and she says when john ramsey came upstairs with her body my mind exploded i saw black with thousands of lights and everything that i noted that morning stuck out instantly that stuck out instantly suddenly made sense uh we had a nonverbal exchange that i will never forget and as we looked at each other i remember and i wore a shoulder holster tucking my gun right next to me and consciously counting out the 18 bullets And the interviewer's like, why would you do that? (laughs) And she says, because I didn't know if we'd all be alive when people showed up. Oh, my God. I think she's given other interviews, too, where she was like, I knew at that moment that I was in the room with a murderer. And even even if that's not the exact phraseology that she's used in an interview, that's 100% the implication here, is that she made up her mind the moment... John Ramsey emerged from the basement with Jean Benet's body. And that's the story that she is stuck to, to this day. And it's interesting because the story really does get twisted over time. There's this period during the day, Linda's there, you know, Patsy's being consoled by various people kind of in the parlor. And this movie does place John Ramsey in his study, kind of looking over some documents. We don't really know what he's doing. But I think that's when he's checking the mail. No, that was earlier. Because you see him with the letter opener. No, then there, then there's that time where they go. There's like he's looking through the mail, and then there's a later scene where he's like sitting at a desk. Do you know what I'm talking about? Maybe if you keep talking, I'll remember. But honestly, even for having watched this movie twice, I couldn't tell you most of what happens. <laughs> it does all blend together, but. I mean, I believe that this was Lifetime's attempt at representing kind of what has evolved into, among some theories, this idea that John Ramsey was mysteriously missing from kind of the main 
um, kind of gathering in the Ramsey house after the rest of the police had left. And then John Ramsey spent two hours in the basement, supposedly with no one noticing, came up and was like, what can I do? Went down to the basement, you know, bringing another person to like find the body with him. There's no official account that has ever said as much. Linda Arndt has always said, oh, he was in his study and it was weird. But, you know, the idea that he had been kind of away from Patsy and the pastor and the family, you know, through this game of telephone on the internet becomes he was unaccounted for, he must have been in the basement, to that being reported as fact among some people. Anyway, that's when Linda gives him the homework assignment. Go make yourself useful. And then, so in one of the docs I was watching, the, one of the FBI agents who was there said that he had wanted Linda to be the one accompanying, like, he said, I told Linda to tell him this, but I wanted her there so that she would, like, watch him and basically so things wouldn't happen this way. But, right, she tells him, why don't you go grab Fleet and search the house top to bottom Mm -hmm. instead? Fleet is his best friend, the Whites. They were at the Mm -hmm. Whites the previous evening. everything with the Whites. Exactly. Jean Benet's, what was believed to be Jean Benet's last meal until the results of her autopsy were released, um, it was believed that her last meal was at the Whites' Christmas party the night before. Cracked crab. (laughs) What a bougie thing to do. Oh my god. Every fucking time I see the clip where it's like her last meal was cracked crab at the Whites. I'm like, she was six years old, goddammit. And also, to go from cracked crab to like canned pineapple, are you kidding me? We'll talk about this more. <laughs> but okay so john and and uh michael or fleet white why did i just try to call him michael maybe to give him a normal last name um john and fleet go to the basement linda Arndt has always been like just a short time later he comes up with the body um fleet white at the time was kind of like oh yeah very quickly he found it whatever i don't know I don't really think that's, like, worth speculating on that much. I don't think he was, like, making a beeline to the body, and I don't think that's a fair assumption to make just from being, like, oh, it took him so little time. Whatever. He goes, he finds her body in the wine cellar. It's, like, the furthest (laughs) corner of the basement. Um, And allegedly, so CBS in their documentary recreates the house a little bit but doesn't really show the floor plan and so my understanding is that the wine cellar is behind two doors you have to like walk through a doorway and then there are two closed doors okay so it's deep back there um and if you've seen the crime scene video the ramsey's house is so cluttered with stuff you know it's huge and there's shit everywhere. Um, just, like, stuff that you have from, like... You know how, like, 
parents of young kids will have like one room that's just like a disaster and it's filled with children's toys mm-hmm. that's the entire ramsey house basically especially the basement the basement is just very cluttered and i could see how i mean i don't want to get into speculation so it's cluttered he finds the body he scoops her up he takes her upstairs he places her down on the living room floor and this is also kind of heralded as john ramsey a taking fleet white down there to be sort of his witness to the discovery of the body but this is kind of seen as john ramsey you know taking an opportunity to destroy kind of what physical evidence is left if you see john ramsey give an interview you know you can see that his explanation i think makes sense which is that he didn't know that she was dead so he wanted to bring her to help rather than wait for help to come to her I mean, she had tape over her mouth. I mean, whatever. That would not have been my reaction, but fine. I mean... She had tape in her mouth and was like, I'd been in the basement for how long? How... Whatever. Whatever, John. Yeah. I mean, at the same time, (laughs) was it a genuine belief? Was it denial? You know... The veracity of that belief aside, I could see how he could believe that upon discovering her body right and that's kind of that's kind of it as far as like the ramses theory i think really people like to point to the fact that the ramses kind of immediately hired a publicist they talked to cnn before they talked to the boulder pd they were not cooperative with the boulder pd and many months later only answered a written yes or no questionnaire before Mm -hmm. being you know actually formally interviewed separately yeah clearly here's how the lifetime movie ends the investigation keeps happening and then steve quits fuck we can't do this that fast uh fucking what's his name comes in lou schmidt the other investigator lou schmidt god bless lou schmidt is like truly the boulder pd doesn't have any fucking experience they do one to two homicides a year they decide oh it's the ramses fucking lou schmidt and his magical book mm-hmm. of like hundreds of cases 149 cases we're gonna make her 50. I remember that scene where he's, he takes out his wallet and shows Steve <laughs> the stack of photos. Um, he, super well respected, comes out of retirement fucking just for this. Right. And is like, hey guys, it's me, renowned investigator Lou Schmidt. I have come to the conclusion that it was not the Ramses. I think an uh, an intruder came in, and then Steve is like, <laughs> "The DA won't press charges." Mm-hmm. They're also yeah, and so they're like Steve is like, "Right, I'm gonna quit." This is why he's the anti. Yes, Marsha Real. Clark. They both quit after one case, except she was right, and the jury (laughs) said, 
we're gonna let him slide on this one. Steve, on the other hand, quit the police force, never worked in policing again, despite being dead ass wrong. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But being very happy to continue to give interviews about this case for the rest of his life. (laughs) So that's how the Lifetime movie ends. With that, the other evidence supporting the quote-unquote Ramsey theory is this 911 call. Mm Mm-hmm. And the ransom note. These are kind of the two things right. that are analyzed after after the body is found that become part of the Ramsey theory mythology. Do you want to talk about these two things since they're kind of in your linguistic purview? Sure. So the 911 call is covered... Is CBS the ones who actually went and interviewed the... Yes. The operator? Yeah. Okay. So during Patsy's 911 call, there's like a period where it gets quiet and like, according to the operator, Patsy thought she had hung up, Mm -hmm. but the operator stayed on the line because she thought she heard some things. And then people have said that this is, like, a conversation. CBS did this fucking bullshit uh, audio engineering where they are literally, like, the fucking audio engineer that they got, the stuff that he was doing, I was like, this is the shit that I do to edit Pulp, and, like, I taught myself how to do this in literally two weeks. Like, who is this fucking expert that you got? That's gonna. That's like. Oh, I'm gonna highlight this selection, and then do a noise reduction. And by selecting the selecting the parts in between when the speech is happening, I really think that'll make the voices pop. And I'm like, that's literally how I edit pulp. Like, this is not some like crazy good investigative no, technique. No, like this not is, at all. It's literally a reduced noise filter that they have put on this 911 call and they're like oh we have three people saying god help me we're not talking to you what did you find (laughs) (laughs) and if Burke was asleep at this point in time then how is he conversing with his parents who all just happen to be standing around having this (laughs) Not quite cohesive conversation, but enough that it would definitely suggest to the 911 operator that it's a conversation about the corpse of John Bonet. I don't know. Right. So that's the 911 call. They also... It's nothing. In the CBS doc. Okay, let's just get this on the table. The CBS doc is garbage and anyone with critical thinking skills should realize that they're not explaining or backing up any of the claims that they're making at any point no they're throwing out scientific methodology at every turn yeah the cbs documentary is literally like six white men an asian man and a white woman sitting around a table and then being like cool we don't have any of the evidence we don't have 
<laughs> anything to examine. We're just going to do a, a thought experiment. <laughs> the woman asks a lot of leading questions like, isn't it possible that blah, blah, blah. Isn't it possible that this flashlight was the murder weapon? Isn't it possible? Right. You know, Patsy Ramsey wrote this. We have to talk about the ransom note. But it's so leading. Have, I was it's about to get into the so leading now. because the first part of this two-part documentary is like, doesn't Patsy Ramsey look suspicious? Doesn't John Ramsey look suspicious? And then the second part is like, well, here are some ways in which like it seems like they maybe couldn't have done it. Uh, here's some problematic evidence. Let's just get a 10-year-old kid in here for shits and giggles to reenact cracking a skull with a flashlight. Let's just, you know, we're not, you know, we're not saying anything about Burke. We haven't even brought him up, but we have a 10-year-old kid on hand. (laughs) Who looks a little bit like Burke. (laughs) And then... Let's see if he can crack a skull with a hammer. (laughs) And then, by the end of this, by the end of this, they're like, you know, John Binet couldn't have gotten that bowl for herself. Let's suppose instead Burke was eating a midnight snack. You know, her fingerprints aren't on the spoon, but Burke's are. Okay, what if, follow me here, you know, children will walk by you and they'll grab food with their hands. They'll do that, right? Let's suppose John Bonet happened upon Burke eating a bowl of milk and pineapple, the most nasty thing I've ever conceived of. And she just took one bite. She just took one. They really specify just one piece of pineapple. And then Bert <laughs> killed her for that. <laughs> and then the family covered it up. That is the conclusion that they come to. <sighs> Sorry for the spoilers. Oh my God. But point being... The CBS documentary clearly leads you down this path while also being like, we're going to debunk the entire science of DNA touch evidence before your very eyes. Yeah, the this, this CBS doc is doing a lot. They have a forensic linguist in the panel who, like, forensic linguistics is a thing. Like actual forensic linguist i don't know maybe this guy is a fucking actual forensic linguist and was very upset with the cbs documentary but based on the claims that he made i'm gonna say he was not so upset that he like didn't participate Mm -hmm. (laughs) he was like this is gonna do wonders Uh, for my career (laughs) yeah like yeah so the way that like language like i'm not gonna fucking Forensic linguistics is actually very good for, like, coming up with a profile of the way that people talk, Mm -hmm. like, based on regional uh, features, based on, like, gendered age features. Like, forensic linguists can usually come up with a profile of, like, who wrote this. And so when they have this forensic linguist 
working on this ransom note, which is notable because it's three pages long. It's left on the stairs, which is like, why would anybody leave it on the stairs? That's a really weird place for it, especially if they're if you also left the body in the basement. Like mm-hmm. weird. So people are already like very questioning of this note. It's discovered that the note was written on Patsy's like telephone pad. Mm-hmm. With a pen that was kept over there. This is all just background. But it's, like, way too long. Mm -hmm. The forensic linguist then comes on and is like, I think it was written by a woman. (laughs) Based Uh, on uh, maternalistic (laughs) language, such as, listen carefully. I... uh, they they're talking about what are you gonna listen to (laughs) (laughs) let me i wrote down the phrases he pointed to because they were ridiculous you should actually Mm -hmm. i really recommend reading this whole note people talk a lot about like the different aspects of it um the author identifies themselves as part of this foreign faction that obviously doesn't exist they ask for one hundred eighteen thousand dollars, which is very close to uh john ramsey's christmas bonus like these are the weird things that people point to it's signed sbtc which some people think is saved by the cross and like patsy just couldn't think of something and so she remembered this like christian acronym okay what they point to as this maternalistic language that means as a woman is listen carefully when Mm -hmm. you get home because a man would have said when you return to your residence or when you get to your house it's the word home that's super motherly and there's this section where the author writes about these fictional people that have jean benet and this is addressed to mr ramsey and it says like the these people who have your daughter do not particularly like you and the forensic linguist says only a woman would be concerned with like how someone feels about you <laughs> oh my god another big part is they they talk about the note overselling it and that's 73 percent is extraneous without just yeah. like <laughs> you know like people make emphasis like when you read it all together like as much as it is incorporating these kind of phrases from movies and tv it is like more or less like cohesive it's creepy it's like kind of selling you on this whole picture of like what's going to happen to jean benet if you go to the police right right there's a section where like every sentence is punctuated with like if you do this she will be killed Mm -hmm. if you do this she will be killed and cbs is like (laughs) You said that a lot. I you could you could have written this whole note in four sentences. <laughs> Let's all write down the note ourselves to see how long it would take. And they come up with 21 minutes 30 seconds. I got so mad while I was watching this that I wrote it myself and timed it. And it only took me 14 minutes. I was surprised by how long it took me, but it is a long ass note and I was also half doing something else at the time. Like, the thing that people come up with with this note is they're like, it's so long. Why would you write something that long if you were an intruder? The only way you could write something that long is if you were Patsy. (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, and they also say that the handwriting is maybe kind of similar to Patsy's. Yeah. But no handwriting expert has ever concluded that. The results have always been inconclusive. The CPS thing is just such a mess. It's a fucking disaster. Especially when it gets to the... I mean, I'm going to be frank. The real evidence that comes from, you know, the autopsy on JonBenet's body, the forensic science that's done at that point. Because mm-hmm. that really is the scene of the crime. And that's really where the valuable information is coming from. And so much of the Ramsey theory contradicts what they find in the autopsy. Yeah. The Ramsey theory is... Do we want to get into that? Yeah, we can do that. Okay. So the Ramsey theory is more or less that it was an accidental death that was then staged with the binding on the hands, the garrote and the tape all down in the basement, and the death was caused by an 8-inch cash in her head. So, like, the the theory that the Ramses did it is that she got this bump on her head, and then they staged it with the garrote. The garrote is, like, made out of a paintbrush that belonged to Patsy. Like, the note was written on Patsy's pad. The pen was from inside the house. These are all things that they're like, why would all of this be coming from inside the house? It's a, this is obviously all evidence of staging. But the fact that John Bonet had little half moon circles up on her throat is like a normal defensive wound. It means that she was probably like trying to get the garrote off, which would suggest that she was alive uh, when it was being used to strangle her. Mm-hmm. And CBS says that she's brain dead when the garrote is around her neck. Without right. being able to account for how she would then, you know, create these defensive wounds it on her neck. Yeah. Wounds. Yeah. It just, it doesn't add up. No. They also, there are allegations that there was evidence of long-term sexual abuse and there was evidence alleging that she had been kind of penetrated by an object. People kind of group that in with the idea of like staging her death to look like something else to look like a kidnapping to look like a rape gone wrong something like that that's kind of the full picture of where they go with that but regarding the call cbs never says this but this company called the aerospace corporation in 1997 tried to analyze that same period after you know, Patsy thinks she's hung up, and came to the exact same conclusion. This is notable because CBS is not acknowledging confirmation bias, and that for the past 20 years, people have been saying that that's what's said at the end of the call. (laughs) And they even do that with each other. Like, one of them listens to it and is like, oh, this is what I hear. Put these headphones on. Do you hear the same thing? If they actually wanted to do an objective... audio engineer is like, uh, oh, I wasn't listening to headphones, but out of the speaker, it sounded like this. And then they all listened to it, and they're like, oh, it did sound like that. You were right. <laughs> I hear it now. Oh 
Like, and once they said it, like, I heard it too. But that's literally because you just gave reason to what is the sound of static. You know what I mean? It's that you can't hear any fucking voices in there. And the other insane thing is, like, sometimes I'll be editing, um, like, the cable or something like that. And I'll be trying to edit out background noise as well. And when you do that same operation... There's no real guarantee because it's all about kind of the shape of the sound waves. So if you're taking this section that's kind of this low sound wave, this kind of small sound wave, that can then be sliced out of larger sound waves. So you can actually really distort the sound of like normal human speech with a noise reduction process if you're not careful. So by not explaining how they were avoiding that process, that automatically makes me extremely suspicious of whatever they were doing there. And again, like, none of this was really done with any eye to scientific methodology, and I think CBS is just hoping that no one calls them on it. Yeah, I really don't think that that audio engineer was, like... They were just trying to recreate something that someone did in 1997 and not come to any new unbiased conclusions. (laughs) But let's get to the autopsy, which is, like, pretty brutal, but I think kind of makes up the bulk of Lou Schmidt's case. And Lou Schmidt's case is covered in more detail in the A&E documentary, which I really recommend because John Ramsey's also interviewed in it. So, I mean, obviously... Mm -hmm. A&E is working with the Ramseys if they got John Ramsey to do the interview. Like, that says a lot about how comfortable the Ramseys felt being part of that documentary. But they don't try to disprove DNA evidence. So that makes me so much more endeared to that case. But the big thing is a couple of things. So first of all, they discovered the pineapple in JonBenet's system. There's a bowl of pineapple on a table in a in a kitchen in the Ramsey home. This was Jean-Benet's favorite treat. Everyone talks about that. The pineapple was found in her system kind of pretty far removed from where the cracked crab was in her system, suggesting that she had eaten it just a few hours before she was killed. That bowl had Patsy's fingerprints on it and Burke's fingerprints on it. It should also be noted that, like, no other prints were ever found in their home. <laughs> so... Right. I think it's not unreasonable to think that, like, perhaps someone was wearing gloves. But that is speculation. I should really be disclaiming that. So, the theory kind of congeals that whoever fed her this pineapple or, you know, fixed this bowl for her, whatever it was, was with her sometime after midnight when the Ramsey said she'd been in bed and was probably the person who killed her. So, that's part of it. And then, additionally, there are these two... There are these two distinct markings that you can see kind of on her back and by, you know, under her ear on her neck. And there's some disagreement about what these marks are. They're equidistant, circular marks, kind of like pinpricks. So, Mm -hmm. Lou Schmidt says, this is a stun gun. And he shows the... I just... Yeah. Yeah. I just want to say what Boulder PD thinks it is, but go ahead. Okay. In the A&E doc, they show kind of Lou Schmidt's evidence, which was these other autopsies where they knew someone had had a stun gun used on them quite soon before their death. And you can see they're very, very similar, uh, especially when applied directly to the skin. Boulder PD comes up with a different explanation. What if it was Berg's train tracks? Okay, now hear me out. Hear me out. 
I know that they match the stun gun perfectly. And I know that on her back, the marks are the same size, which happens if the stun gun is fully pressed against the skin. And on her neck, one is much bigger than the other, which happens if the stun gun doesn't make full contact. (laughs) But what if it was the train tracks anyway? (laughs) And then they do like some image scaling where they're like, oh, like we took this picture of the train tracks and then we just like made it line up and like we think, you know, I think it's accurate. What if Burke hit her in the head with the flashlight and then he poked her with the train tracks, but she was already dead. (laughs) That's like what it is. (laughs) That's their argument. Um, Can we talk about how the CBS doc tries to handle this? Uh, yeah. Because they... I didn't watch the whole thing. Oh my God. This is absurd. This made me so angry. So they bring in this guy from a, uh, he's a police officer. He's been, he's had a stun gun used on him before. Like many police officers or police departments require police officers to like have a stun gun used on them, have a taser used on them before they can use one in the field, which makes sense. So this guy like knows what it feels like. So they get him in the CBS labs or whatever. And they first do it through his clothes. And then they're like, look, no dots. Okay, whatever. And then they do it again on his skin. They're still like, look, no dots, which I will talk about that in a second. But then they start talking to this guy and they're like, how do you feel? And he's like, oh my God, the adrenaline. I'm so amped right now. Blah, 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 blah. And then they do it again and they're like, how much do you weigh? And he's like, oh, you know, 215. You know, how would a 45 pound child feel after this, do you think? And his answer is probably just like, amped like i just feel like i want to jump off the table and they're just trying to say okay so she's gonna feel four times as amped so how stun guns actually work so they operate kind of on the central nervous system and they make the person's muscles contract rapidly and like not in their control at all so like that is why an adult human who's only had a stun gun applied for half a second um, would feel adrenaline in that case. But if you apply, and this information is widely available on the internet, if you apply a stun gun for three seconds or more, that's when you start to see confusion, fatigue, headaches, that like, that's when the system gets overloaded and that's when you're actually stunned by the stun gun. And again, this is also for adults, not Yep. A small six-year-old child. Yeah. So that <laughs> was wild. So that kind of seems to be a big component of Lou Schmidt's theory because the Ramses don't have a stun gun. And so much of what was used in this crime was found in the Ramsey home. And it suggests that someone with a stun gun came in there with intent. The other kind of aspects are the violence of her death. So, some experts have said that this is not the kind of crime that parents would usually commit, especially the way that the garrote was, like, embedded in her neck and the the force with which her head was struck. But again, that's speculation. Regarding the sexual assault allegations, the original autopsy actually said that there was irritation in her genital region and something that is discussed in the A&E doc is that 
young kids like have poor hygiene and JonBenet had just started wetting the bed. So whether this inflammation was the result of poor hygiene or digital penetration is not commented on in the original autopsy. And no one has had access to her body since the original autopsy because she was buried. In Atlanta. And then the other aspect of the Lou Schmidt theory is the broken window in the basement. So John Ramsey allegedly forgot his keys all the time and would lock himself out of the house and he'd break in to get into his own home. So there's this grate that you can lift up and then there are these basement windows. One of the windows is broken. The pane is broken. And then theoretically, the theory goes that someone could have gone through that window to get to Jean Benet. Mm-hmm. This is very much true. So what CBS says is that so there are three windows. The middle one has the broken pane. And there's a handle directly under the broken pane. So they're using that window only. And they're saying, okay, like, you can get through. And for years and years, the Boulder PD said no one could have gotten through that window. An adult person couldn't have gone through that window. Schmidt goes to the house and just demonstrates how easily he can get in through that window right which is and the fact that john ramsey did it once ostensibly (laughs) so cbs is like okay we're gonna do this blah 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 uh in their recreation of the ramsey home they open the window through the latch that's directly under the broken pane of glass they go in and their big thing is that there's this spider web at the bottom of that window that you can see in the crime scene video and how that would have been disturbed had someone gone in that way blah 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 but if you actually look and this 100 percent depends on whether or not the cbs recreation was accurate and i really can't speak to that but if you look in the cbs recreation there's the broken pane there's the handle directly under it but directly next to that handle is the handle for the window directly to the right of that window does that make sense so the window Mm -hmm. on the edge so it would not be difficult at all to just reach slightly to the right and open that one and slide through there and the other piece of evidence that lou schmidt points to is that in the crime scene video you can see that there's foliage trapped under the gray as though it had recently been lifted and then put back down there's also a suitcase that's found at the scene that has a boot print on it as though someone was using it to uh, boost themselves up through the window. The Ramseys have said that it's not their suitcase. John Ramsey said he didn't recognize that suitcase. Um, and Lou Schmidt posited that that suitcase could have been used to take Jean Benet out of the house through that window. But it's not really said like what became of that suitcase and I don't think it was ever tested for DNA. Wow. Yeah, I hadn't realized that they didn't own the suitcase. I just thought that it wasn't kept in the basement. I think John Ramsey says he doesn't recognize it. But it's John Ramsey. Patsy Ramsey's been dead for 10 years from ovarian cancer, so I don't know if it's the full story. And again, that basement is filled with stuff, so what he would recognize and what he wouldn't is definitely a question. Um, The real kicker in the intruder theory is the touch DNA evidence that is discovered many years after the case originally kind of comes to public attention kind of as forensic science advances 
Unidentified male DNA is found in JonBenet's underwear and leggings. This is touch DNA. This isn't necessarily bodily fluids, but this is the DNA that would come off from just having contact with her. And obviously her entire family has been tested. The whites submitted themselves to testing. I believe many people in the Ramsey social circle who would have been at the Christmas party the night before submitted themselves to testing. And this DNA has never had another hit even though it has been compared mm-hmm. to the, like the FBI database and other national DNA databases. Yeah, the Investigation Discovery three-part documentary, which actually did a very good job of like kind of walking through the theories one at a time, kind of in chronological order, I mm-hmm. guess. Like they start by being like, all right, so Patsy made the 911 call. What if it was Patsy? And then they put that away. And then they're like, cool, let's look at the series of possible intruder suspects. Anyway, their, like, big scoop was that apparently they can say definitively that the DNA comes from someone of Latino heritage. I have never read that in another source. Well, that was because it was an investigation discovery scoop. I literally just thought that. <laughs> Fair enough. Points investigation discovery. Just <laughs> um, I don't know if I want to leave that in the episode. <laughs> I mean, they know it's male DNA. But they know that. Th- right. And what's wild, I was talking to my dad about this. I feel like I've talked about the Grim Sleeper before, but the Grim Sleeper was this serial killer in South Central Los Angeles who killed, I think, at least 16 women. I might be misquoting myself here or misquoting Mm -hmm. the documentary here, but he killed many, many women. He had never been picked up for a crime, so his DNA was never logged in a database, but his son was picked up for something completely unrelated, I believe an assault and battery charge, something like that. They took his son's DNA compared it to this national database of mystery DNA and got a hit that was very close to the Grim Sleeper, the DNA that they had found connected with these bodies. And they realized that this guy that they had was related to the Grim Sleeper. So that's like how far DNA technology has gone and how these like databases are used. And talking to my dad, he was saying that he's so surprised that it's unidentified because it means that whoever this person is who you know this dna was used to exonerate the ramses in 2008 whoever this was never committed another crime basically their dna was never taken in relation to an arrest was never submitted to the fbi crime labs so that is considered behaviorally unusual and kind of adds to like the mystique of the crime it's not even have like a family member pop up at this point like yeah i mean my my guess would honestly be that whoever it was must have died very shortly after and then you know not committed a crime and then never you know yeah that makes sense the dna is the smoking gun that kind of pulls i think everything from lou schmidt's theory together and says like yeah there has to have been another person and i think i could personally be sold on a theory that included a third party that kind of holds the ramses accountable in some way or says that they were complicit in some way i could buy that 
personally, but definitively we know there was someone else who had contact with Jean Benet in the hours before her death, and that person's never been identified. Yes, but what we can say is that that person was not a suspect, according to Steve, the all-American cop with a chiseled jaw, who is this the star <laughs> of who killed John Benet. He was supposed to rescue the princess. Yeah. Can I say how the CBS doc deals with the DNA? Yeah. Did you see me. this part? No. I honestly, when they like got a 10 year old <laughs> to just be like, could Burke have smashed her skull is when I was like, I'm out. Okay. Like, when they pulled the 10-year-old out from underneath the table <laughs> was when I was like, no. We just happen to have one on hand. We're not leading you to a specific conclusion. Okay. <sighs> so it's really weird because they literally do this. The way they go about it is very hypocritical because they take the flashlight and they're like, oh my God, like had they taken the flashlight into evidence, we would have been able to look for touch DNA on the handle and on the batteries from changing the batteries. Like this is how we would have done it. Demonstrate it for us. Like they do this whole thing where they're like, you know, the flashlight is the smoking gun and it's never been definitively proven that the, the flashlight was the murder weapon. It's convincing. Like she was hit on the head with a blunt object. But it's never been definitively concluded that it was 100% the flashlight. Anyway, regarding this DNA that's found in her underwear, they, this is so absurd. They take this package of fresh underwear from the store. Underwear's still in the package. They have someone, you know, wearing gloves, open it up, and then test it for touch DNA, and they're like, look, we found this DNA. It's probably from a factory worker in Thailand. They say that. We've debunked the DNA in her underwear. Without mentioning that, the DNA was also found on her leggings and other parts of her clothing. Mm -hmm. Without mentioning that this was not underwear fresh out of a package. Like, she'd been wearing this underwear. You know, they didn't change her clothes when they got home. They were like, oh, she's so tired. We're just going to put her to bed in her outfit from the night before. They completely failed to deal with the fact that, like, these are not the circumstances under which this article of clothing was found. And then they're just like, all right, touch DNA, debunked. But if we had it for the flashlight, like, that would be really useful. That's it. That's the argument. I don't even know how to respond to that, honestly. Can you believe that there are people in this world that are like, yeah, the CBS documentary... It's the it's a it's the most authoritative documentary on Jean Bonnet. Burke did it. I mean, yes, I can believe that, but only because like there are people who voted for Trump. That's true. Like facts don't mean anything <laughs> anymore. It's very true. We live in 2016. We should also Um, touch on the fact that the Lifetime movie does do a dramatization of Burke's interviews with the Child Protective Services, I believe. Well, the police and then. Yes. Because a lot of the argument surrounding Burke has always been like, he's kind of weird too. (laughs) That's the Ramsey theory in a nutshell. They're all weird. Right. They have him getting like very aggressive when 
somebody takes a sip of his soda. Yeah. Like if maybe somebody popped a piece of pineapple in her mouth, he might react with the same amount of rage. I mean, I'm not saying anything. What are you saying? (laughs) I watched the interior. I watched the tapes of like him being interviewed by a child psychologist and I kept waiting for that moment to happen and it never does. It was completely fabricated. That's great. But they're like, oh, he moves on with his life so soon. And it's like, honestly, he's nine years old and probably doesn't have the capacity to process these emotions. Yeah. And also, like, his life just got real weird. Yeah. I mean, I'm on the record saying that, like, if I was living in Italy and my roommate got fucking murdered, I would be like, you know what? Sorry, I'm too busy with, like... My boyfriend over here. That's where I would be if I was Amanda Knox. If I was fucking Burke Ramsey, do you think that, like, no? Yeah, well, and I think that, like, anyone who is so beholden to this idea that Burke didn't act correctly are probably the same people that would get so caught up with, like, behaving correctly if they were ever caught up in a similar allegation that they would immediately become suspect for trying too hard to act a certain way that's how i feel oh definitely and then burke did an interview on dr phil this year too and people were like see he's still weird i don't like giving dr phil too much credence because he's very exploitative but he makes a really good point when he says like burke ramsey has basically been living in isolation for 20 years because people think he and his parents killed his younger sister obviously he's going to be a complete weirdo in front of the camera and have very awkward like social mannerisms so while the boulder pd's investigation zeroed in on the ramses very quickly there were a couple other suspects and as time has progressed there have been a couple more i was just remembering there was like a form that the boulder pd filled out where they basically said that the suspects were john and patsy within like 48 hours yep. like some crazy and short they, timeline then, to be like these are the people who did it yeah. and then they um they get mad at lou schmidt for coming to a different conclusion in 72 hours anyway here are four other people that have been suspects one bill mcreynolds bill was the santa claus who would like come and hang out at the Ramsey's house every once in a while. I mean, for money, they paid him. <laughs> um, but yes, John Bonet had apparently been given like a note saying that she would get a special present or a visit from Santa after Christmas. And so that is what got Bill on the like list of suspects. As police kind of dug into the backstory, it turns out that his daughter was also murdered on December 26th, and his wife had written a play about a girl who gets, like, tortured in her basement, and so police were like, definitely him. Touch evidence said, maybe not. I mean, he had he had an alibi, too, right? That was what ruled him out originally before they, ident- before they could analyze the touch DNA. That sounds about right. I watched like a solid forty-eight hours you of really did John Bonet content. Like I said, I watched the movie, then did all of my research, and then watched the movie again. That's wild. But so there was 
there's a two day period where it was just it took a day and a half for me to be like this case is a real bummer (laughs) (laughs) and what really got me was actually the the defensive wounds was when I like that was when I lost it yeah I forget which doc it was but it was talking about how you could see how the garrote had moved yes that's Annie 100% oh it must have been but it was like yeah at first whoever applied the garrote was just throttling her before like (laughs) pulling it up and actually choking her to death and you can tell because there's these little fingernail marks where she was trying to save herself. And at that point was when I was really just like, all right, I think I need to take a break from the John Bonet content for one minute. I mean, it's um, so easy to lose track of the fact that like a six year old girl died and was definitely conscious yeah. of her death and like whatever was going on before it. Completely. Yeah. So was it an alibi that ultimately got Santa Bill excluded? I don't remember. I just know that they all got excluded by DNA in the end. Is where I'm coming at you with these list of people. Uh, Michael Helgoth had some like property dispute with the Ramses, and he also owned a pair of the boots that Lou Schmidt identified. And so he was a suspect, again, ultimately mm-hmm. ruled out. This guy named Gary Oliva was considered for a bit. He was a kind of transient individual who was living in Boulder at the time. In 2000, he was picked up on a drug charge. And when they searched his backpack, they found like a poem that he had written to John Bonet. <laughs> And then in his home, there was, like, an entire shrine. And, like, at some point in time, he had tried to kill his mother with a telephone cord. And so his friend was like, oh, he definitely could have made that garage. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Wasn't him. And then the most recent suspect, who was ultimately discarded... Actually, I don't even know. This was ten years ago. But the last one that I have notes on is John Mark Carr who, like, on some internet boards in 2006, confessed, was talking a lot about the crime. They eventually tracked him down to Bangkok, Thailand, where he was arrested and questioned. There's ultimately no evidence that he was there, nothing tying him to Mm -hmm. the scene. And it turns out that everything that he had written was already somewhere in the public record. And additionally, he had claimed that he had drugged John Bonet and there were no drugs in her talk screen so police were like that doesn't quite add mm-hmm. up he was interviewed for investigation discovery at which point he tried to say I only admitted to being with her when she died and so like he's kind of trying to say that like I was still there when she died <laughs> well um, and they kind of proved he wasn't in the state of Colorado when she died <laughs> He still says he is. But yeah. Ultimately, DNA evidence would suggest that none of these people are the killer. In addition to the fact that just like... I mean, I guess mostly the DNA. But Yeah, yeah. mostly the DNA. (laughs) 
In preparation for this episode, I did also watch the Fox original film, Perfect Murder, Perfect Town, John Bonet. Tell me everything. From the town of Boulder, Colorado. I will tell you that this movie is three hours long. It features Chris Christopherson as Lou Schmidt, Mark Helgenberger, the CSI woman, and then also in this movie is esteemed character actress. Margot Martindale. Margot Martindale. The movie's three hours long, does a very good job of exploring every possible scenario before moving on. Mm. I say that. This was the last thing I watched before returning to watch the movie again, and so I was, like, falling in and out of sleep while watching the movie, and I don't really feel bad about it, because, again, it was a three-hour made-for-television movie that came out four years after the case, and so there wasn't even, like, all of the interesting developments happened after this movie came out, so... That's all I have to say about it. There's a movie that exists. It's way too long for what it's able to say. Shall we move on to pulp ratings? Let's move on to pulp ratings. So let's start with... I'm trying to think about which one will be most interesting. Let's say accuracy. Let's start there. Because that one I think will be least interesting. So what's your accuracy rating? Okay. Some would say this movie is very accurate. Some would say it's based on completely subjective testimony from one person who definitely has an axe to grind. So I'm going to say this is an orange that you set on a table at the end of a hall of mirrors. And at the end, you're looking at the reflection of that orange reflected off of many, many mirrors in this prism. Some of them are you know, twist it a little bit. They're distorting it. You don't really know what you're looking at by the end, but you think it's an orange. You're pretty sure it's the same orange at the other end, but you don't really know. Okay. I don't know if you've ever had those, like, orange juice concentrate things. Oh my god, yes. But you, like, get them in a freezer and then you like pop one end off you unfurl the cardboard stick this like concentrate in a pitcher pour some water on it and then stir it and you have orange juice that's wild i have seen that in stores (laughs) okay we used to do these when i was a child this movie is that package you're so right of frozen orange juice concentrate that was then sat on a table and 20 years later it's just a puddle and you can see that it's concentrate and there's not any pulp in there but when it first came out of the freezer you were like oh there might have been some pulp in here this is a promising theory you know let's let's wait to see how the investigation goes oh it turns out that (laughs) right there's no pulp in there And 20 years later, Lifetime, you should not have made a movie of this puddle of fake orange juice. (laughs) But at some point, I could see how you would think that it was an orange, maybe. That's that's good. But ultimately, DNA just doesn't. Like, why would you make an entire movie about this guy who's been proved to be, like, 
just patently wrong about everything. Why would you make a movie? Because he's a knight in shining armor. Let's talk about the aesthetics of this film. Michael Gill's performance, wonderful. Production values, high. I'm going to say this is, um, it's a, it's a, okay. It's like one of those Clementine cuties where there's like really Mm -hmm. hardly any kind of skin or whatever. It peels really easily. There are no seeds. You know, it's, you have a very easy time digesting it, but then you're like, how did they do that? That's not how fruit tastes in the wild. (laughs) 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 That's how I feel. And I stand by that. (laughs) Fair. Uh, I will say that this movie aesthetically... Focusing more on the narration and the very frightening shot of (laughs) Patsy sobbing through her open fingers. We also never talked about how they handled the body, which was horrifying. Oh my god, they have another sheet on top of it. But they, the like blue dirty hands, like the way... That was horrifying. They really dramatized, like, finding the body. Yeah. I will also say that this Lifetime movie, like, this was the only recreation that showed John Ramsey picking her up just, like, underneath the armpits and carrying her... (laughs) directly in front of him with arms outstretched (laughs) instead of cradling her the way that a normal person would like pick up a child and also would make sense if he thought she was still alive this whole like you know picking her up and cradling her like no this lifetime movie is like he picked her up held her out at arm's length and basically just look, stared into her face and screamed as he ran through the house. Like, the vision of him walking <laughs> through the house carrying the body is just so goofy in this movie. Um, this whole movie is goofy, though. Yeah. I don't know where this is coming from. But I'm just going to say it's an orange-scented, like, air freshener. I like that. It just popped into my head. That's where we're at. I don't know. Uh, Ethics. Ethics. Oh, boy. Oh, I really have to think about this. Mm. Okay. This is an orange-flavored syrup that you would buy for like i don't know i guess like making italian sodas or like whatever but it's at a coffee shop and like no one orders an italian soda so it's been sitting on the shelf for an indeterminate length of time it's maybe started to crystallize and one day you take it down from the shelf and you dust it off and you look at the ingredients and you're just like oranges aren't even an ingredient here what could this possibly be 
and you just never know it's just orange food coloring and sugar and it's completely unexamined you just put it back on the shelf and you never bring it to anyone's attention ever again (laughs) hope no one brings it up ethically this is oh okay i know what it is it is the freakonomics cover where it looks like an apple but then you cut into it and it's an orange Mm, but in reverse mm -hmm, mm -hmm. where you look at it and you're like oh this is going to be so pulpy like let's have a look yeah we're getting to the who killed john benet it's been 20 years and finally this film is here (laughs) with the answer thank you lifetime who did kill john benet i would love to know that's a great answer and you're like i love it and then right you peel this orange and you're just like whoa what is this (laughs) it's just it's just so mealy there's no pulp in here thank you you can find me on twitter at at lil j flores <laughs> good night end of episode but let us know who you think killed jean benet or don't if you're from the jean benet subreddit i literally don't want to talk to you let us <laughs> right <laughs> let us know <laughs> whether you think cbs effectively debunked touch dna as an area of forensic science you know, let me know if you've seen the A&E documentary. I don't know. Even though the Lifetime movie is annoying and biased and all the ways we've discussed, it kind of ends on this note of being like, well, we don't really know what happened, even though this movie is 100% supposing that it does know what happened. And maybe it's time to just let JonBenet go. Maybe there's some wisdom in that. I don't know. We just talked about this for two hours, so maybe I just need to shut my mouth. <laughs> Yeah, I thank you for bringing that up because I forgot how incensed I was at the nerve (laughs) of a movie. Like, hi, it's me, the ghost of John Bonet, and I've come to peace with the fact that I'll never know who killed me, even though Steve Thomas has made it clear who he thinks it was, and I love that guy. But maybe we should all just stop. (laughs) Stop making movies about me. Stop making documentaries about me. Stop making podcast episodes about me. The audacity. Lifetime. But I also love it. I'm like... (laughs) Ooh, Lifetime... Girl, you went <laughs> The second time you watched it, were you really ready to be like, yeah, we gotta let her lie. <laughs> we gotta let this go. <laughs> no, but I was like, fuck yeah, that is the way that you end the Lifetime movie, Who Killed John Bonet? <laughs> <laughs> I hate it even more now. But in that hate, I found a kernel of love. (laughs) That's really where this review is. (laughs) Right there. Oh my god. Alright. For more fire takes like that, you can follow me 
uh, on twitter.com at, at liljflores. Uh, you can also follow the podcast on Twitter at, at pulppod, although I don't think I've tweeted from that account in a good three months, so honestly, knock yourself out. <laughs> if you want to take over the Pulp Pod account, contact us. <laughs> right. This Manage is also a good us. time to announce that we're maybe switching to a monthly schedule. <laughs> You know what? <laughs> We're just going to do this uh, whenever the mood strikes because CBS is not releasing that Menendez Brothers series anytime soon. And as we discussed, we're definitely not covering season two of American Crime Story. <laughs> you can follow me on Twitter at Ashley Brandt. Uh, you can also listen to me on other podcasts such as The K-Hole, uh, my Kardashians podcast, which I co-host with Brooke Marine. We're going to be covering season 13 Uh, whenever that uh, season of Keeping Up with the Kardashians starts airing in the spring, and we'll obviously be covering any big IRL news that breaks. In the meantime, you can also listen to me on Twin Peaks Peaks podcast that I host with Matthew Olson. We're gearing up for season three of that to debut allegedly in the first half of 2017, but we shall see about that, won't we? Uh, Thanks for listening.